just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. What is the big picture of relievers in baseball these days? And which relievers should we be watching in the second half? I'll ask relief pitching expert Greg Jewett about that and a whole lot more next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, July the 14th. It's show number 26 of the 2023 fantasy baseball season. I am Patrick Davitt, your host, and we do have another great Friday full edition for you. We'll have a two-part feature expert interview with Greg Jewett, who writes about relievers at the Reliever Recon website, covers closers for The Athletic, and writes the lineup's outlook column at Baseball HQ. In part one, we'll discuss the big picture elements of reliever research and his lineup outlook batting order work at Baseball HQ. And in part two, Greg and I will talk about the nitty gritty of the reliever game, looking at closers, near closers, soon to be non-closers, and some long shots to become closers. We'll also have our weekly fantasy news update with Ray Murphy from BaseballHQ.com looking at American League hitters, including Luis Robert of the White Sox, Edward Oliveros and Samad Taylor of Kansas City, and Jonathan Aranda of Tampa. And some American League pitchers, including Christian Javier of Houston, Kyle Bradish of Baltimore, and James Caprellian of Oakland. Then we'll head to the National League with hitter news, including Mookie Betts and Miguel Vargas of the Dodgers, and TJ Friedel of the Cincinnati in a crowded outfield, and National League pitchers, including Braxton Garrett, Jesus Lazardo, and Yuri Perez of Miami, as well as Max Fried of Atlanta. We'll also have our regular commentaries from the guys at BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In the frequent flyer, Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky looks at Arizona right-handed reliever Justin Martinez. And in extra innings, I'll be talking about how Rob Manfred is... Right. It's another big Friday full edition. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? Relief pitching is on our agenda as baseball resumes. We're going to talk some baseball. And in the first inning of this Friday full edition, part one of our feature expert interview with Greg Jewett from the Reliever Recon website, The Athletic, and Baseball HQ. Greg, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Is this your first time or have you been here before? I don't know that I've ever been on your show. I've done the, we did a lot of the, um, Doug and I did a couple of the Zoom things during the online Baseball HQ portions during COVID. I'd have to go back and look, but uh, all right. Well, welcome to the show for the first time then, if that's the case. Uh, How many drafts are you playing this year, Greg, and how are your teams doing overall? I did four drafts at NFBC and um, I'm in the tout head to head, but that's an auction, but um, so far. Okay. The uh, in tout, my team right now is in first place. It's 11 and two. It's uh, head to head points Uh, in the NFBC. My main event team is in third in its league. 
uh, but 51st overall. So with 53 leagues going, uh, that's not bad. I'm hoping in the second half, uh, you know, we can we can turn the momentum and try and get into or towards the top 20 because uh, that's where the extra bonus money lies. I, I don't know. This is my first year doing it, so I was a little scared at the beginning, but as time goes by, it's getting more normal. And then I'm in two MEQs. Uh, one is in second, one is in third. And in TGFBI right now, I'm in fourth. I've been uh, I've been dilapidated by injuries like most people. Yeah. What's MEQ? Uh, those are main event qualifiers. If oh. you, it's it's all or nothing. It's you you win your league, you get a ticket into the main event. If you if you don't come in first, you get nothing. All right. Okay. I understand. Any common threads on your successful teams or your unsuccessful teams or in your teams in general? I think with my teams all being in third place or better, uh, you have to trust the process. Every draft room is different. So um, actually one of the most common threads I have is Max Freed being injured on uh, four of my four of my teams, but hopefully he'll be back in the uh, second half. So that'll help. Um, just trying to navigate the additions. It's been a crazy year with all the prospects coming up and pitching injuries and things of that nature. And, and the, the most terrific irony is a couple of my teams might be in first place if I had taken a closer sooner. <laughs> Go figure. And we'll talk about that later. Uh, are you one of those guys who likes to diversify across your teams by not having a lot of the same players on a lot of teams, or do you like to focus guys you really believe in and get a lot of shares across all your teams? Uh, a lot of that's player dependent. Um, as I said, I already had, I lost a couple of, uh, free shares, which stinks. However, I really liked, you know, Atlanta being, it's a great place for a pitcher because of the wins and, you know, especially in tout head to head wins are seven points a, a piece. So, um, I do have, uh, I think Justin Turner's on three of my teams. Um, he's been a common thread. So, but I think where you draft kind of dictates some of it. I'm not going to push up and get somebody. Um, I try and read the room and, and just hit my marks. If the player ends up on more than one of my teams, I'm okay with it. It's not something I actively uh, avoid. Well, let's get started. Uh, you mentioned the irony of having uh, wished in hindsight that you'd taken a closer sooner in one of your leagues, and that's something we'll talk about. But, of course, you've made your mark in the fantasy baseball expert or tout world by focusing on relief pitchers. How long have you been doing that and how did you get started thinking about it in terms of being this focused? Uh, it's funny, you know, I've spoken to Mike Curland off air and, you know, going into a niche can be a little bit daunting, especially uh, one where a lot of sites feature it on theirs as a, as an added feature. So, um, but it, it, it began all the way back with the original first league I played in, uh, the teacher's league at CBA. That was the first time I played fantasy baseball. And I noticed that closers always went in our league, especially they went 20% above what I would a lot as my, uh, portion in the auction part of the draft. So, you know, it, it, it forced me to, to chase saves on the waiver wire at an early point. And then as um, I started writing in 2013, um, it kind of became a side thing where I started sharing my process on how I would chase them and things of that nature. Um, David Kerr, God rest his soul, um, on one of his websites, I started doing like a closer column there, which translated into um, doing the bullpen report with Al Melchior on fan graphs for a couple of years. And then it all kind of extrapolated from there. And then the opportunity presented itself with the athletic uh, doing the closer column there weekly, which uh, a lot of people need for, 
you know, I do the dirty work for him. <laughs> well, that's what a lot of, uh, fantasy baseball writing is about these days is there's so much information for people to get through that it makes sort of economic sense to divvy it up amongst a number of people and concentrate it so that, uh, your average rank and file fantasy manager, who's got, uh, other things going on and can't focus to the extent that we can, can use you and use baseball HQ and use all of these other resources to f concentrate the information and make it actionable rather than having to slog through all the box scores and sl slog through all of the, uh, you know, weekly stats and those kinds of things. So I, I think it's economically efficient uh, is why it works, I think. But in your tenure focusing on relief pitching, Greg, what do you think are the key components that make a relief pitcher in Major League Baseball successful? I know we'll touch upon some of this a little later, but um, a what I'm work I'm obviously focused on is the game leverage. When are they pitching? You know, closers obviously you want them in the ninth inning. Um, it's tough when guys end up pitching in the eighth or other situations. What I call a highest leverage reliever, uh, but we, we want guys that have good K minus BB percentage. This is something uh, Doug and I have talked about through the years. You know, we usually start with 20% K minus BB rate being a baseline like that's that's pretty good so if a guy's at 20 or better um that's something we're looking for you know traffic on the bases in the ninth inning usually leads to disaster we don't want guys putting people on base without having to swing a bat um i want guys with swing and miss stuff i mean it doesn't have to be super elite but it, they have to be able to get a strikeout in a big situation when it's necessary and you know there's the next portion, I won't take it away because it's a segue, but, you know, you just have to watch and read how these pitchers are performing under these situations. You know, as the as the season gets deeper and those games become more pressure packed, uh, are they responding to those big moments and being able to get those saves and, and, you know, not only help your fantasy team, but their real life one as well. A number of years ago, I invented a pure quality relief stat for baseballhq.com and it, it never got adopted, but I thought it was a pretty good idea to give a reliever a, a score per appearance like we do with PQS for starting pitchers. And one of the components of my PQR metric was if a reliever in an appearance gave up a home run, it was an automatic zero because home runs are so disastrous in relief especially in high leverage relief situations that you can't really give a guy any kind of credit if he gave up a home run, even if it didn't affect the outcome of the game. I just think it's a disastrous outcome for a relief pitcher. Do you put any extra emphasis on home run per nine rates or home run per fly ball rates, those kinds of things? I do track them, but not as closely maybe as I should. Um, I think what you're almost intimating at, there's a, there's a, a lesser known stat that they used and actually Tampa Bay used it in its arbitration hearing uh, against one of its reelers that in their um, win probability added charts that you can, that you can click on, on the site at Fangraphs. Uh, there's the shutdowns and the meltdowns. Uh, a shutdown is an outing where a reliever comes in and it's productive and it gives his team a better chance of winning. Uh, and then a meltdown is obviously what you're talking about, giving up a home run, letting inherited runners score, things of that nature that, takes away the winning win probability added. So, you know, sometimes when I'm trying to figure out when who's going to be the next guy, I'll look at the at the shutdown and the meltdowns and then also the game leverage index kind of seeing are they used in the high leverage moments and how are they performing in them? Um, and if a guy is not really pitching in high leverage moments or has a lot of meltdowns, that kind of makes me a little more hesitant to say, hey, go pick him up. 
Are these measures of relief pitchers different when it comes to closers in particular? You mentioned that leverage plays a pretty big role in your assessments, but it's possible to get into higher leverage situations in the seventh inning than in the ninth, depending on score and where you are in the lineup and that kind of thing. Before we get into the idea of guile, what, what is different about a closer from any other relief pitcher, if anything? I think the biggest difference is just being, being okay with being the center of attention that if you, if you lose that game that you can, you know, if you can quote Ted Lasso, be the goldfish and come back the next day and enter that situation again. Like I was getting a little nervous about AJ puck, but then the manager went back to him the day after blowing a save against Philadelphia against the exact same lineup pocket, you know, JT Ramuto got a hit. Then the next day puck came in against JT Ramuto, but then he got, he got the uh, scoreless outing and got the save. So, you know, you, you want to see those things. You want to be able to see a reliever come right back and face the same team and, and be able to succeed the next day. And, and, you know, again, I don't want people on the bases and, you know, that's, you know, clean outings are tough, but, you know, wily old veteran, you know, I do track those on my own um, clean outings. I, I put in a filter on baseball reference. Ryan Presley right now leads the majors with 20 clean outings and, you know, I think we, and we'll talk about that later. He's one of the most underrated fantasy relievers just because he doesn't do anything flashy, uh, but he's on a good team and he gets the job done. As you probably know, up until a few years ago, Baseball HQ had a component in its reliever assessments in addition to skill and role, which were the two primary components, but they had something called guile. And they basically it was a kind of way to combine together all of the narrative intangibles that seem to characterize successful closers, especially when we hear closers being discussed in the sports media. There's this idea of confidence on the mound, experience, attitude, uh, coolness under fire is something that you mentioned. How do we account for those intangible personality traits in assessing, well, especially closers, but all relievers? And is it appropriate to do that? It can be. Um, back one year when Aroldis Chapman was on on my tout team, um, I paid a, I paid closer attention to his outings and his body language. It, he wasn't much of a poker player. There were days where he was, you know, posing after the strikeouts and he hits that thing. And Yenier Cano does the same sort of a deal. Um, and I'm okay with the pitcher showing emotion, but at the same token, there'd be days where you could just see the sweat dripping down and Chapman was feeling it, and you just didn't see that same. It was almost like a tell, like you knew when he had his stuff and when he didn't. Um, and, and, you know, you don't want that. You, you want your, you want your closer almost kind of uh, looking the same way, no matter what I'll give, I'll give Emmanuel Clause a lot of credit. He's had more blown saves this year than last year already in only a half of a season, but you know, you don't see him talking or being frustrated and things of that nature. And you just hope his slider improves in the second half and things normalize. But you know, that's, that's kind of what we're looking for. We want somebody looking the same, no matter what the situation. On the other hand, when you use an example like uh, Class A, he's struggling, he's failing more often, mm -hmm. and yet he still maintains this guile, for want of a better word. And I wonder if it's possible that we could be fooling ourselves when we look at a guy who's out there and he's looking cool as a cucumber while he's failing, and we we give him more credit for a likely turnaround based on all of these intangible things rather than mm -hmm. looking at pitch mix, spin rates, all of the numerical data that are available to us. Yeah, same thing. Like Kenley Jansen gets a gets a big pass on a lot of those things. It's like, 
almost every year you see a column saying she can't should Jansen remain the closer and then he kind of finds his way back uh I think a lot of these bigger guys uh, I think the mechanics sometimes get a ride and things of that nature like I already intimated Clause slider this year has just not been the same um they they mentioned him tweaking it in the spring and it's just never usually in the second half the slider takes off and the weather warms up and he does better so again that's what we're pinning our hopes on but you know, if he keeps if he keeps maintaining these struggles as August approaches, he'll be curious about how Cleveland handles that situation. I also often wonder about the willingness of managers to stick with their established closer, because if the guy blows a save and the reporters come nagging the manager in the post game press conference, why did you stick with him? Well, he's my guy. You know, and the manager seems to feel that he has to show confidence in the closer, lest the closer lose confidence in himself. And I understand that, but at a certain point as a fantasy manager or as an on-field Major League Baseball manager, you have to get past the appearance of confidence and start looking at results and looking at skills, don't you? Absolutely, and that's that's why I, I try and you know, keep track of the K minus BB rates, the swing strike percentage, even the strike percentage. Is he throwing strikes? Um, is he, is he working in the strike zone? Um, we'll, we'll talk about that briefly on another reliever later on down the chart. So, you know, and, and, and I also, um, you know, Sarah's found that Sierra was the best in season ERA predictor. So that's why I often lean on that in the, uh, in the ratio realm. Um, but again, you know, if I start seeing the whip tick up and the swing strike rates going down and the whip is rising, then then we're starting to see somebody that's on the verge of a, a potential um, a risk or, you know, that's somebody we just want to make sure we're keeping tabs on and hopefully they can turn things around. But if they don't, you know, that's that's the hardest part of tracking the closers is, is you know, the old Kenny Rogers, no one to hold them and no one to fold them. You know, is, am I going to weather the storm with somebody or do I need to make a move and get the next person or move my safe share into another, another lineup spot? So when you're following a closer whose skills seem to have eroded to the point where he's on the bubble with his team or should be on the bubble for his team, how much do you rely on the news and other narratives? What, what decision process includes that kind of stuff? It's difficult because some beat writers are pretty, pretty on the mark, but other beat writers, um, you know, the, the San Diego beat writers a couple of years ago, there was never any mention of Melanson. And then he came in and had that, you know, I, I called his season guts and guile when he racked up all those saves that year. And now he hasn't even pitched in a regular season game this season. Uh, it's, you know, it's, it's the old six one way, half a dozen the other. You, you take it as a part of the process, but I don't rely solely on what a beat writer says. If a manager says something that gets your attention a little more, but even even those sometimes are smoke screens. I mean, it's some some people don't want to give away what they're doing uh, in, in, in a thing. You just have to really rely on what they've been doing all season and, and just read how they're using those pitchers. Like, Evan Phillips this year has been used as a, as a primary safe share. Then he went back to an HLR and then he's kind of morphed back. You know, it's, it's tough because David Roberts has moved the goal line on us a couple of times, but we just have to read and adapt. HLR is high leverage reliever. Who's basically a closer skill level, but not closing games. Correct. It's somebody where if, if the game's on the line, like the, the two, three, four hitters from the Phillies are coming up in the eighth inning and we're ahead by one, I might bring Phillips in that situation because it gives me the best chance to win. Um, and it doesn't mean 
I don't trust them as my closer, but at the same token, I think somebody else can get the the hitters behind them and behind those three out uh, if the game is on the line at that moment, especially like if you think in the playoffs last year with Seattle, Andres Munoz, when he was just on a tear, um, he was always going up against Bichette, Vlad Jr. in that in that series instead of, you know, holding him or, or making him go into the ninth. It's a little ironic in the sense that for years, people in the fantasy baseball business and the fantasy analytics business and the baseball analytics business all used to say, this is exactly what these managers should be doing. Best pitcher <laughs> goes in in the toughest situation, in the highest leverage situation. And now that some of them are doing it, we get mad at them because we don't know who the closer is and we don't know where the saves are coming from. And I think that sparks a conversation, a whole bigger conversation about is saves a good category for fantasy baseball. And I know there's lots of arguments about that. And personally, I think it would be better to have an effective relief outing as a, as a category rather than a, than a save because saves are so capricious and we already have that mm -hmm. with wins. You mentioned that you don't trust the manager and I'll just say this. I trust the manager more if he says I'm losing my confidence in this guy than if he comes out and says, I'm maintaining my con the old dreaded vote of confidence <laughs> in the closer. But if he comes out and says, this guy better shape up or I'm going to ship him out, I think that's something we can rely on. So once you've determined that this guy is really on the bubble and really at risk of losing his job, what research steps do you take to look at the team and figure out who's next in line to get that uh, closer role and maybe pick up those saves? You want to make sure a guy doesn't have like extreme split disadvantages. Um, you know, you, you can't have somebody that's just going to be able to get right-handers out or left-handers out uh, in the ninth inning because teams are going to pinch hit in those big moments. Uh, and, and again, uh, you know, we kind of intimated at it earlier. You know, I look at that SD minus MD, the shutdowns minus meltdowns. I look at the game leverage, and then I also look at what innings they've been coming in. And if, if I really need to break it down. I'll even look at the lineup pockets that they're facing because it's, it's one thing to be pitching in the eighth inning. If you're facing the one, two, three part of the lineup, it's another, if you're pitching in the eighth and you're mopping up against the seven, eight, nine. So, you know, that stuff does come into play. Uh, and those are the little nuanced things that, you know, I, I like to think makes reliever recon worth what the people uh, invest monthly in our site uh, as a differentiator, instead of just saying, Hey, it's going to be this guy. Cause he's in the eighth inning you know, 50% of the time it's, you know, this guy's matching up with the toughest lineup pockets. So if something happens with our incumbent, this is probably the one that will get a chance. It's interesting that the leverage indexes, we publish them at Baseball HQ and you can find them in uh, Baseball Reference. You can find them at Fangraphs all over the place, but they don't include the order, the where we are in the, in the batting order. And you'd think that a leverage metric ought to include what was the, you know, WOBA of the three hitters scheduled to come into the inning? Because if you're going in, as you said, against guys with 425 WOBAs versus a guy who's coming in against guys with 325 WOBAs, the, 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 the guy with the highest WOBA against, the, the guy who's facing the highest WOBAs coming in is probably should be counted as extra leverage. I'm going to mark that down at the end of this and see if there's a way we can build something to track. I mean, I can, I go through a lot of that myself and I'll include it in the reliever uh, recon recaps on the closer charts that, you know, the subscribers get access to. And I'll say, Hey, you know, so-and-so came in and he faced the three, four five pocket of the lineup. 
versus he just came in and pitched the eighth. Seven, eight, nine. Yeah. When it's when it's when it's necessary to highlight, you know, you know, it's you know, it, it, now people are on red alert because you know Jordan Romano came out of the All Star game last night with the tight back. Now it could just be a flight slash staying in hotel, you know, whatever stress. There's a hundred things that could have that could have caused his tight back, but you know, I already. The, this morning I wake up to messages in the discord. Should I go add Nate Pearson? You know, my ad and Eric Seawald It's like, these people are crazy passionate about it, which is cool, but it's like, you know, let, let's let the news cycle run before we go uh, make too many rash decisions on the waiver wire. Well, I've got both of them uh, on on two different teams, unfortunately. Since you started researching relievers and devoting yourself to the study of relievers, and you said that was what, 13 years ago or so, 12, 13 years ago, who has been the best closer that you've ever come across in major league baseball? Uh, for me, it's, it's the person who kind of led me into this and that was Mariano Rivera. I mean, not, not only was his command so amazing and you want to talk about somebody that was cool under pressure, even when he gave up that walk-off hit against Arizona, he just kind of strode off the mound. There was no upset or whatever, you know, it was just a bad break. Um, he threw one pitch almost exclusively. I mean, he just he just moved his. He had such command with that cutter, he could put it where he needed to to get out of those situations. It was just uh, a joy to watch. How about the most underrated closer you uh, can think of in your ten or twelve years? I'll go more recent, just because it's easier for the probably for the listeners. But I mean, uh, I think Rizel Iglesias and Ryan Presley both get underappreciated every year, and it it creates you know, pockets of value in most drafts or auction rooms because people want to get the person at the at the top of the line. It's like, I think one of the biggest mistakes is every year we overdraft the first two or three at the top of the tier. And then it's usually the second and third tiers that produce not only the the better save numbers, but the most value for, uh, for the uh, price point of investment. So, you know, those things have to be, you know, accounted for. Who's the best closer in the game today? This season so far, I think it's been Felix Bautista. And I know he gave up the home run in the All-Star game, but, you know, it's his, his, he's got 19 more strikeouts than the next best reliever in the category. It's just, in fantasy purposes, it's just such a huge uh, advantage, and, and especially with how volatile starting pitching has been this season. Um, he's just been a, he's been a, a shining star, which is amazing because – when he was in the minors, he struggled with command, and he's actually had a better walk rate in the majors, uh, which is tremendous. But when when he's coming downhill uh, with that fastball, and then he can snap off that splitter, it's uh, it's a it's a work of beauty at times. You know, sometimes it's a little bit of a rocky ride, but um, you know, I, I think he's a joy to watch. Uh, luckily, he's on my tout team. Yeah, that is lucky. Uh, Ray and I were talking about him last week. Fifty percent strikeout rate so far this yeah, year. Actually, yeah, a little bit know, over. Yeah, it's 50.9, but I mean, you know, last year we were highlighting Edwin Diaz for doing the same sort of a thing. And I think just because Bautista's in Baltimore kind of stays a little bit below the radar. I mean, he's very, the fantasy community knows how good he is. I don't know that the, you know, people that just generally casually follow baseball do. In my drafts this year, I noticed uh, it was still Class A and Edwin Diaz going in those when 
people were taking those early round guys and maybe a bit of Josh Hader. And then Bautista was kind of down in that sixth round area where people started picking up the secondary kind of closers. And like you said, it seems like that's where all the value turned out to be as it does almost every year. Uh, We've seen real baseball managers, as we discussed, using their best relievers more with an eye on leverage and game situation than with traditional bullpen roles. What is the momentum looking like that when we look at the future, is this likely to be something that increases over time or are we going to see the old guard hold steady? I really think it depends on the team concept and how well the analytical department works in concert with the manager. You know, it's, uh, there might be eventually, it's like everything, there's going to be a wave where the old school closer might make a comeback. But I think right now you'll continue seeing you know, I, I like to call it a primary save share, the guy who gets most of the saves with the exception of, you know, Clause Bautista and some others that they're only in the ninth inning or in, in, in extra innings. But um, I think you're still going to see the, the HLR and the things of that nature uh, as long as health allows. Um, you know, the, the health factor is big and, and relievers are so volatile because some of the guys that were just outstanding last year have not been able to replicate it this year. And that's the hardest thing about it, which again, makes Rivera such a standout because he just did it year after year after year. And you didn't notice a real decline in his production levels, which was just astounding. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Greg Jewett from Reliever Recon. He writes at The Athletic and at Baseball HQ. And at Baseball HQ, you don't do relievers. You have a column called The Lineup Outlook. And for listeners not familiar with the column, although I mention it pretty much every week in the site promos, how do you choose which lineup to outlook? Uh, Well, luckily, just like relievers, a lot of managers like to tinker with the lineup. Uh, The hardest part is... Being able to nail down, is that guy staying there? Like the one week I highlighted Ha Young Kim, I was a tad bit nervous because you didn't know if San Diego was going to take him out of leadoff. And then like the day after the article went live, he didn't hit leadoff, but then he was right back in the day after. So um, you're trying to watch the trends. I'm on baseball press a lot because you can see the lineups from the last week and then you can take it a step further and go through. Um, I research on baseball reference. I go through the game log, see where they're hitting. And I can also, you know, parcel out how many times they've appeared in each spot in the lineup uh, with the splits and things of that nature. Uh, But obviously, and ideally, we want to identify guys who are moving up in the lineup because that means more counting stats, runs, uh, chances at RBI, things of that nature. Uh, With the exception, we we did do one week where we kind of spoke about, you know, a couple of guys batting ninth, like Michael Harris and Leo Tavares were providing great run output compared to Estuary Ruiz just because of the teams they're on, because Atlanta and Texas score so many runs that, you know, our, our recent, our bias of, I don't want a guy betting last suddenly translates into if this guy gets on and ahead at the top of the lineup, then they're going to be scoring runs because Acuna and Albies and Seager and Semi are going to get those guys across the plate. Um, so I, I think, even I know people have talked about it, but I think next year you're going to see a lot more concentration of not only, um, you know, what players do I want? And I don't, I don't necessarily need them at the top of the lineup. If I'm getting guys on very good teams that are going to score a bunch of runs, then I can still get production from those people, even if they get a depressed price point. Yeah, there's a school of thought in fantasy baseball, of course, that what you're trying to do is accrue plate appearances. And then from that, the next step is, well, there's a 20 plate appearance, roughly a 20 plate appearance drop-off per lineup slot. 
mm-hmm. going down the lineup slots. And as you said, it's not that cut and dried. You'd really way rather have the ninth hitter in Atlanta than the top hitter in Oakland because of the run environment in its entirety. Mm-hmm. In your column around the start of the month, you issued a positive report in an, on Washington third baseman Heimer Candelario. And after noting that Candelario was whiffing less while making more contact, more in-zone contact, and chasing less often, you then cautioned this level of production cannot carry over throughout the rest of the season. So what is it about the production that's out of alignment with what sound like good skills, and how do you square that circle? Maybe I shouldn't have used the word cannot. That might be a little too strong, but, you know, that there's always one-year outliers where a player is just kind of pop and everything comes together, um, and that might be where we are. So what I wasn't, what I wasn't sure of is, is, is this an actual – growth step in his development as a hitter, or is this just a hot streak? So that's kind of why I wanted to be cautious and say, Hey, you know, you can go get him, but don't be disappointed if in a couple of weeks you see a tail off when, when numbers start to move towards his past levels of production. Um, Cause he does have a, a decent amount of plate appearances in his career that, you know, we're just a little, we're happy about what we're seeing, we just we're just kind of like, is is the shoe going to drop and things going to add back? Um, that might be somebody I circle back to, especially um, if he gets traded to a better run environment, which is possible since he's on a one year deal. So it would make total sense for the Nationals to move him to a team that um, he could that he could help for a postseason run. When you see a skills improvement like better contact, better in zone contact, those kind of things. How much of it do you have to see before you give the player credit that this is a new level of skill, leaving aside the the level of production, which is contingent on a lot of team kind of context things? I know Eno has done an article about this, and I forget the hard numbers, but probably we would want, um, I would say we would want at least 100 to 150 plate appearances of this being sustained. Um, before we we want to go die full bore and saying this is it, let's let's ride. But at the same token, you know, I took a chance early on on adding Luke Rayleigh because I just, I wasn't sure. Is it, is this a hot streak? But he's been able to maintain a, a good level of production for 15 team leagues. It doesn't mean he's 12 team league viable necessarily because he can be a bit streaky, but um, he's provided enough um, counting stats to make him worth that ad when I took him on my main event team, uh, you know, about a month, month and a half ago. You close the column each week with hitting stream options. Of course, most of us are familiar with the theory of streaming starting pitchers, but how widespread is the uh, approach to hitting streamers? I know Jeff Zimmerman um, is very, very good at it. Um, he's, you know, he's been an advocate of it for the last couple of years, and, and I've actually kind of come around. Um, some of the best NFBC players uh, are a little more willing to invest on pitching is because as we talked about earlier, the streaming pitchers this year has been very hit or miss. Um, you know, you might get by with one week, but then the next week they implode and then it kills your ratios. So I, I kind of did the same sort of an idea I, in my main event and a couple of other drafts. I went a little more pitching early than I'm accustomed to. And I figured as the season went, I could do exactly what the column's kind of highlighting. So if I need speed, I try and identify a player for, speed and power because you know obviously there's two different things everyone has different needs uh in season but this is the point where you really need to be focusing in on the on the standings like if you're leading your league by steals and 20 
you're obviously you're probably going to be looking for power. Well, Greg, this has been super interesting so far. Let's take a quick break. I've got to go do some news with Ray Murphy, and then we'll finish our discussion in a few minutes. No problem, Patrick. Greg Jewett writes about relievers at the Reliever Recon website, covers closers for The Athletic, and writes the Lineups Outlook column at Baseball HQ. He'll be back later to talk about the nitty-gritty of the reliever game, closers, near-closers, and soon-to-be non-closers, and some long shots to become closers, and he'll have his relief pitcher Boons and Baines for the second half. Coming up, we have our Market Watch Player News Reports with Ray Murphy of BaseballHQ.com. That's next on Baseball HQ Radio. Right now, though, it's time in the show when I get to let you know about an item of the great content that lets us say BaseballHQ.com is the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In the Speculator column, analyst Ryan Bloomfield looks at first-half speculative all-star teams, top performers who weren't on drafters' radars. The Speculator column is just another of the many great resources at BaseballHQ.com. Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our weekly news review and update. And here with the latest is Ray Murphy, co-general manager, projections expert, writer, and analyst at BaseballHQ.com. Ray, welcome back to the show. Happy Friday, PD. Happy Friday to you, too. It seems like we've been waiting a long time, Ray, for Chicago White Sox outfielder Luis Robert Jr. to join the ranks of the first-rounders but after a promising $24 start during the COVID season, Robert has battled injuries and sometimes questionable skills, and he's had a couple of sub-$20 seasons, but this year he's firing on all cylinders, a 30-ish dollar a year-to-date 5 by 5 value, pretty much top 10 among hitters. Corbin Young looked at Robert this week in the American League-focused Facts and Flukes performance validation article at BaseballHQ.com. So does Corbin Young think Luis Robert has finally arrived? Yeah, you're right for sure that injuries are sort of the, the the headline here. They've cost Robert a lot of fantasy value the last couple of seasons, 101 days in 2021 um, with COVID issues and a torn hip flexor tendon and another 35 IL days last season with a second bout of COVID and a wrist sprain. As I remember that 35 days really understates it. I feel like Robert was day to day for something like three months last year. It was like, you know, three days, three days in out for two days and just maddening to, you know, wait, waiting for these issues to clean up. And that, you know, it took him a very long time to get back to um, sort of an everyday role. So the injuries uh, certainly, have been a big part of the picture. Uh, and this year, health seems to be what has really unlocked uh, this version of Robert. Uh, much smoother sailing as far as stay, staying on the field. Of course, there was that little blip this week where he said he might have uh, tweaked something in his calf during the home run derby. I guess, you know, hitting 50 home runs in, you know, 45 minutes or whatever it is is enough to strain a muscle here or there. So he did miss the all-star game itself on Tuesday, although he says he'll be ready to go for tonight. I got a tweaked muscle just watching him. Yeah, 100%. You know, some of the torque those guys were generating, maybe Vlad Jr.'s was more obvious because, uh, you know, not wearing the helmet and seeing the, uh, seeing his hair flying everywhere, you know, with the, with the back tweaking was, uh, you know, making me hurt just watching some of those guys for sure. But back to Robert, um, you know, staying on the field has been a big key, but 
he's not just in the lineup. He's also super productive. 26 home runs. So we're a little bit past the halfway point of the season. So that's a 46 home run pace in the full season, 62 runs and 51 RBIs. So going to be, you know, 110, 100 kind of pace there. Uh, 271 batting average, and he's got eight stolen bases, which you know isn't great in this sort of abundant stolen base environment. But if he's on a pace for 14, 15 stolen bases, you know that can only help. Certainly adds a lot of uh, value. Corbin says we shouldn't expect Robert to sustain this level of power, but he says the skills do support the elite first half. You know, some of them do at least, uh, you know, in terms of, you know, we like to start these analyses with what, what's going on at the plate, right? With the plate patience and contact rates and that sort of thing. Um, Robert's been a little more patient this year. His chase rate is 42%, which is down a little bit from his career average, but let's be clear, still not good. You know, that's bottom four or five percentile in terms of, uh, chasing outside the strike zone, but he's been less aggressive overall. His overall swing rate is 56%, which is again down from his career average a little bit. He's swinging at 76% in the zone, which is also lower. So it's, it's funny. It's a little bit more of a, more of a passive approach here, you know, swinging less out of the zone, but swinging less in the zone too. Um, it's not necessarily a formula for success, but to your point, it's obviously working for him. Well, Corbin does point out that Robert is making perhaps a little less quality because he's being less aggressive, but the contact he's making is what Corbin called loud. Yeah, that's exactly right. There's less contact, but when bat hits ball, just really good things are happening. So if he's being more passive and more selective about when to uncoil the bat, but, you know, focusing on on pitches he can drive that's the other side of the coin that's the that's the good news here uh you know his expected power index is 126 um he's got a 94th percentile barrel rate so you know really is scoring up the ball quite a bit um average exit velocity doesn't show that much different from different from prior years uh max exit velocity is not at a new level or anything like that. It's actually down a little bit from last year. Uh, but still, I think last year he was a 99th percentile guy in max EV. He's only at 88 this year. So still good. Uh, just, you know, not off the charts good. Uh, but the in terms of the overall contact profile, the other thing that, you know, we sort of often see here when there's a power spike is that he's also bumped his fly ball rate. He's getting the ball in the air more, you know, we sometimes call that, you know, the more uppercut swing, which is sort of a flippant way of describing it, but he is lofting the ball more. Uh, so swinging a little less, getting the ball in the air more. He always did hit the ball hard. You put those things together and that's where the power is coming from. Anytime I read a skill set like this, it makes me think that the player might be selling out uh, swing discipline in favor of swinging harder to get, generate that added power, whether it's fly ball rate or hitting the ball hard, it, we'd expect to see a little increase in strikeouts. And I think we have seen that, uh, Corbin Young, who wrote this article is not overly confident that Robert can sustain the home run pace, even for the rest of this year. Yeah, it's interesting because, um, you know, the other aspect of he hits the ball hard and he's getting the ball in the air, that all sounds good. But we also have metrics for this stuff, right? Um, his home run, per, Robert's traditional home run per fly rate, you know, the, the, that works kind of like Babip does, where once you establish a career norm, you should regress back to that. So we're seeing that he is uh, seven percentage points above his career norm for home run per fly, which suggests that... Um, 
he's getting a little bit fortunate there. Um, and, you know, sometimes it's a little tough to tease out what the core power skills are for a guy like this who has missed so much time to injury. And then sometimes, you know, when he's playing in between injuries, you wonder, you know, whether he's at peak or, you know, is being hampered by something. Uh, but um, it does seem like he is kind of out over his skis a little bit in terms of the power. And you mentioned the stolen bases uh, on pace for 14 stolen bases. Well, what about the possibility of improvement in that area? Yeah, he's on pace for 14, which, you know, is, I think we'll say helpful, but not outstanding in the, the current environment. Uh, it, that's He's running less than last year. And, you know, of course, when we talk about somebody who's got um, the injury track record that he has, I almost wonder if, you know, we shouldn't be wishing for more stolen bases because of the risk that comes with it. But, you know, certainly the speed skills are still there. He's gotten his, his success rate is still 80%. So that's, uh, you know, th th that's certainly within the range that which, you know, from a skills perspective, we give him the green white, the sprint speed, 82nd percentile, et cetera. Um, you know, certainly this profile does support double digit stolen bases, but given the power he's unlocked with the caveats we were talking about a minute ago, if the trade-off to stay in the lineup and get those home runs is that he's got to, you know, sort of temper his enthusiasm on the bases, I I think we'd make that trade. I do too. And I, I noticed that he's had 20% fewer stolen base opportunities this season. And that indicates that he's not getting on base as much. And, and that in fact is borne out by his stats. As they say, you can't steal first. And, and if, well, uh, you know, you also can't steal first on a home run. So let's right. Or a, or a triple. Yeah. Right. So what's the upshot of all this for Luis Robert as a fantasy asset? Yeah. So I always like to take a look at where the projections are falling for a case like this that has sort of a lot of moving levers and see where they all net out, right? Um, the projections say, you know, he's going to net out with career bests in, you know, most most all of the counting categories, and he's well on his way, you know, even with the base of stats he has now to a season of $30 or more in value. This is, you know, it's going to be an elite season uh, if he so much as stays on the field for the second half. Um, the contact rate is probably the key going forward and we'll see how much he can maintain this more patient approach, but still sting the ball as much as he is when he makes the contact. So that's probably uh, something to worth to, to watch going forward as is of course the health question. And we have indicated at baseballhq.com in the past that the idea of combining patience at the plate with power is a skill that seems to develop a little more as a player ages and acquires experience when you're young and, and reckless, you really are swinging for the fences and maybe getting hurt as well. But as a player gets a little older, he seems to often seems to figure out that balance of patience and power. Yeah, that is right. And, you know, Robert is, of course, you know, despite the couple of bumpy years here, you know, coming into his prime now, and it's not entirely unreasonable at all to see skills consolidation here and turning sort of the, you know, the, the less... The, the, the less molded raw skills that he came to the majors with into uh, skills that he now could turn into productivity um, more quickly. Uh, but, you know, it still raises the question going forward about, you know, is he a sell high candidate? And I think the injury risk alone would have me interested in entertaining offers for him. And I think looking ahead, even if he stays somewhat healthy and 
productive for the rest of this season and delivers on those projections that I was just talking about of you know more than a thirty dollars season, et cetera. Um, my my knee jerk reaction from this early point is that he's someone who I would consider to be overvalued next year because inevitably he's gonna, you know, if he delivers on the kind of season we're talking about, he's gonna be a first round or near first round value. But it's gonna be based on the one year on the one season and you know, recency bias will suggest that people don't properly value the injury risk and also the, uh, you know, the little bit of softness and the skills that we were talking about here. So I'm probably leaning toward the bearish on Robert for the long term here. Last season, it seemed like we had to discuss Kansas City outfielder Edward Olivares just about every week as he rode the shuttle back and forth between Kansas City and Omaha. Well, we're going to be talking about Oliveris again this time because he's on the IL. He's got an oblique strain. Ryan Williams covering the story for Playing Time Today at BaseballHQ.com. What's the latest in the long running slash bus riding saga of Edward Oliveris? Yeah, there's you know there's a joke in there about yeah sure he pulled his oblique from uh, you know getting tired of lugging his suitcase out from under the bus or something right <laughs> yeah, exactly yeah <laughs> but in this case uh, you know they are calling it a mild oblique strain uh, we shaved a little bit of playing time of, off of his projection and we will stay tuned for further adjustments as the timeline becomes more clear here uh, Samad Taylor is up on the Royals roster to take Oliveris's roster spot um, he and Nicky Lopez should pick up most of the available playing time here. Lopez uh, got his first start, uh, I think, the Sunday before the break in left field as the Royals sort of jumble that uh, move Lopez around as the infield uh, turns here. Uh, you know, Lopez was sort of getting kicked out of the infield by the emergence of Michael Garcia. So uh, Lopez got jumped, got a chance to start out in left field. Uh, Taylor probably ends up being the short side of a platoon. Um, he also can jump between the infield and outfield between second base and left field with, uh, with Lopez. So we'll see if that actually is how it, how it plays out. Uh, but, you know, Taylor was up early in this earlier this year and, you know, not exciting from a fantasy perspective. Uh, you know, he does come with advertised speed and, uh, and he's drawn walks at a good clip, like 16% in the minors. So, I mean, that's promising from, you know, being able to leverage your speed perspective. Uh, but still, uh, you know, he, when he was with the uh, with the Royals earlier, he only hit a buck thirty three with a buck fifty three expected batting average. So, uh, you know, pitchers I always like to say are going to stop walking you sixteen percent of the time when they realize that you're only getting hits thirteen percent of the time. So, uh, <laughs> something's got to give there. <laughs> um, we'll, and and you know, in a short side platoon role, the playing time is going to be sporadic here. And if Olivares is only out for you know a couple of weeks or something like that, I, I don't see more than a token stolen base or two from Taylor and as far as a contribution. You mentioned Nicky Lopez, that start in the outfield was actually the first of his career. And I was looking at Taylor, I have him on my tout team. I took a chance when he first got called up and I was intrigued because he has actually a really good batting average over 300 at AAA and a 412 on base percentage. And I thought if he can get, you know, two thirds of that in the big leagues, he'll, he'll be in the 350, 340 kind of on base range, which me, would mean a lot of stolen base opportunities and maybe a chance to generate some runs and stolen bases to provide fantasy value. But boy, it sure didn't happen. Yeah, he's got like one third, not two thirds, right? <laughs> yeah, no kidding. <laughs> 
In our Playing Time Tomorrow columns this week, during the break, analyst Chris Olson's coverage of the American League East looked at pivotal hitters and pitchers on all five teams in the division, and Tampa's pivotal hitter, he said, was recently called up first base prospect Jonathan Aranda. What was Chris's take on Aranda? Yeah, I really liked this series this week. We sort of we don't do this that often, but we gave the playing time tomorrow folks sort of a theme week and told them to delve into the pivotal hitter and pitcher on each team to go through it. And I thought there were a lot of good insights. Um in this particular piece uh with the Rays, um Aranda has been covered in both playing time today and playing time tomorrow of late, um, because he was on the roster the weekend before the break. Um it was just a cameo, we thought, because Josh Lowe was out. Um, on a family emergency just off the roster for a couple of days. But then Aranda took advantage of the limited opportunity. Uh, he had a double and two runs in the last game before the break that uh, helped the Rays snap a, uh, a rare losing streak. So um, that was Aranda sort of in his minimal opportunity to carry over, you know, really the monster line from that he's been hanging up at AAA. He's got an OPS over 1,000 down there. So he's really getting to the point where he kind of doesn't have much to prove there, and maybe he needs to get a look in Tampa. I understand from Chris's analysis that Aranda's not going to make anybody forget Keith Hernandez with the leather out there at first base. So is this a DH situation? Yeah, in fact, Aranda's actually listed as a second baseman on the Durham Bulls website. Uh, but the defensive shortcomings certainly follow him wherever you put him with a glove, as you suggested, DH is one way to get around that, right? Uh, but, and, you know, interestingly enough, maybe there is a DH opportunity with the Rays. Harold Ramirez has been getting a lot of time at DH. Uh, got, he got off to a hot start this year, earning that playing time, but he's gone cold the last couple of weeks. Uh, I think he's got a 412 OPS in July. Um, Aranda being around and, you know, having a bit of a platoon split that favors facing righties, he's got a, you know, that, that thousand OPS is over 1,100 uh, for Aranda against righties and the minors. Um, and Ramirez hits better against lefties. So if they can keep Aranda on the roster, there is some potential for him to get the good side of a DH platoon. Of course, being the Rays, they always have other pieces that they could deploy here. Luke Rayleigh, could, you know, thumps right-handers and could um, could get a piece of that DH work instead of first base, even though he's somewhat contact challenged. Uh, Josh Lowe should be back after the break here. Uh, he's been in a little funk over the last couple of weeks as well. Uh, but there's a, you know, he certainly factors back into this. So, you know, some of the, you know, we mentioned the Rays losing streak. And after that hot start, you know, some, you know, so they are having some issues scoring runs. Some of these guys have gone cold. So uh, if some of them stay, less productive and Aranda, you know, whether he sticks on the roster or whether he has to go down, go back down and, you know, continue stating his case wherever he is, if he keeps thumping, uh, you know, there's at least a chance that playing time follow, finds him. Chris didn't touch on it, but what about Kyle Manzardo, the first baseman who came into the year with a lot of prospect publicity and a lot of expectations that he would be up sooner than later, we're, we're past sooner and we're getting closer to later. What's the deal on Kyle Manzardo? Yeah, you're right. He was the number two prospect in our preseason organization report for the Rays. We did, and you know, in the scouting report, we talked about one of the best hit tools in the minors with you know still emerging power. Um, and, you know, so you know, profiled as a high batting average, you know, maybe even 30 home run potential. You know, classic 
first base kind of bat. But uh, his second tour around AAA in the first half really just has not delivered on that potential. Uh, he's got 11 home runs and hitting only 238 in you know regular playing time, 300 plus plate appearances down there. Uh, so you know just okay and not at all like the you know 300 plus batting average with even more power that we have been seeing in the minors from him previously. Um, and in fact, it's gotten worse as the season has gone on. It's not a case where he's shaking off a slow start. He hit. He's been hitting 182 with you know little power and a lot of strikeouts since June 1st. And then uh, right before the All-Star break, he went on. He actually went on the uh, seven-day IL down in AAA. Well, I, I have not seen details of what that injury is, but that just reinforces that he's probably not an option at the moment. I looked it up online, and according to the Coeur d'Alene, Idaho Press, a newspaper down there, Manzardo was pulled from the Futures game in Seattle with a shoulder problem, so another reason to be skeptical about Kyle Manzardo. Also, I, I don't know if you've seen this, but Manzardo's mother is having some very serious health issues, and she's kind of like the rock of his life. You know, she was so supportive as he worked his way through uh, lower levels of baseball, and she's got a really really tough form of cancer or uh, not cancer. She needs a heart uh, oh, transplant and uh, she's on the waiting list for this heart transplant. And that's apparently weighing on Kyle Manzardo. And while we wish him uh, all our best, that's something that we never seem to give enough credit to players for is that they are human beings and they have lives away from the field. And it's not unusual when those lives sometimes interfere with top level athletic performance. So we, I'm sure we can all understand that from our own lives. I mean, when you lose a parent or have a parent who's very sick, I don't care if you're a banker or a baseball player or a fireman, it weighs on you. Oh, I was going to say the same thing. It, you know, I, I do a much worse job in a, on any given day if I'm distracted by concerns about my family or whatever. And I don't have the, you know, the pressure, the public face or, the elite skills that these guys have to display on a daily basis. So it is of course entirely understandable. And like you said, um, you can only hope that that gets to a positive resolution soon. And nobody's throwing 90 mile an hour fastballs at you either. Although I try yeah, to throw you the occasional curve here on baseball <laughs> HQ radio. Let's go over to the American league pitchers. Uh, we talked earlier about a hitter in Corbin Young's facts and flukes article, but he also covered a couple of pitchers, including a right-hander having a surprisingly, non-productive season, Christian Javier of Houston. And Corbin started his review by noting that Javier has the 11th worst strikeout minus walk rate since June 1st among all pitchers who have 20 innings. And he also says that Javier's skills metrics from the first half look concerning to the point of affecting his possible role as a starting pitcher in Houston. What's going on here with Christian Javier? Yeah, it really is a disappointing first half. Uh, you know, the, the overall line, 91 innings of 434 ERA, uh, which is more, up more than a run from each of the last three years. Um, you know, 122 whip, which, you know, he was barely a over 1.0 whip guy the last few years. So it's clearly just not the same pitcher. Um, the underlying metrics are just as concerning. The strikeout rate is way down uh, 22% this season uh, against a three-year average of 31%. Uh, you go down to the individual pitch mix and the four-seamer and the slider are generally where he gets his strikeouts, and both of them have seen the swing strike rate um, plummet. Uh, you know, we sort of equally between the two of them, the fastball strikeout swing strike rate is down 12%. The slider... Uh, down to 12%, excuse me, the sliders down to 11%. So both of those are now sort of, you know, 
average or you know even below average on the swing strike rates when they were both assets before uh he's getting tagged by lefties which was never really a problem um and you know it's not all luck factors either you know they he's been he had some room to regress in that area last year he had a 22 percent hit rate um which is now up to 28%. The strand rate's down to 72 against 84% last year. So, I mean, those are not, you know, those are worse, but those are not unlucky. But the real concern is the, um, you know, the actual skills dipping a little bit. There was some speculation in our forums that he might've been tipping pitches. Um, so I'll be curious to see because the Astros are sticking him back in the rotation this weekend coming out of the break. He skipped his last start before the break, you know, so maybe they did a little bit of a tune-up with him over the last, you know, two weeks or so since he actually pitched. Uh, he pitches this Sunday, and I'll be curious to see if they've ironed anything out there. But it's, uh, you know, it's a, you know, it's not a bleak picture might be overstating it, but compared to what you paid and what you expected for Christian Javier, it's, uh, you know, certainly disappointing. Yeah, something else Corbin pointed out was that his results in the strike zone have stayed pretty stable, but out of the strike zone, and maybe this is something to do with the tipping that you mentioned, hitters might be wising up to that slider out of the zone. They're swinging less at it, and they're making more contact when they do swing, so it sounds like A, they can see it coming, and B, when it's not way out of the zone, they're, they're getting the bat on it at least. So there's, they're also swinging less at in zone. They're making more contact there. So as you said, right all the way down to the pitch level, this is not looking super promising. So what should Javier's fantasy managers, which I include myself, be thinking about how to deploy Javier in the second half? I guess the glass half full picture is, you know, they keep running him out there. There's no hint of injury. So I guess we have a little bit of patience. Um, I don't necessarily have a lot of optimism that things are going to snap back to where they are, but given the strong team context here that the winds should continue to flow when he pitches decently, there's a good bullpen out behind him, obviously a good offense. So, you know, I, I don't, I don't think things are so bad here that I would cut him. I doubt you can trade him. So door number three is kind of hang on and hope things get better. Right. Yeah, I looked it up and the Astros bullpen has let 60% of Javier's bequeathed runners come around to score. The league averages around 30%. So he's basically, the bullpen is allowing twice as many runs to come around from inherited runners as they should be. If that hadn't happened, if it had been league average, his ERA would be about 13 points lower, which is still not great, but it's it's something to keep an eye on. And as you said, He's going to have to start. They don't have McCullers. They don't have Garcia. They don't have Urquidy. It's either start him or start hauling guys up from the minor leagues, and I don't know that they want to do that. Our starting pitcher buyer's guide analyst, Stephen Nickrand, almost every month looks back at the previous month to see which starting pitchers rang up the best BPVs for the month. And before we get to Stephen's findings, maybe you can quickly explain BPVs for listeners who aren't familiar with the metric. BPV is sort of an HQ classic. It stands for base performance value. It's kind of the one number uh, that we use to try to aggregate a pitcher's overall skill level into, you know, a, a one number data point that you can use for, you know, quick and dirty rankings and that sort of thing. It captures a pitcher's raw skill by three metrics, uh, strikeouts per nine, walks per nine, uh, command ratio, which is strikeouts minus walks. Um, we look for pitchers to have a 
Uh, base performance value of league average is probably right around 75 this year. So, and then for, so for starters, you want to be uh, close to or above 75. And then for relievers, the standards get pretty high. Used to be we called triple digit BPVs, closer worthy, but that's probably too soft right now. Probably, you know, tr- most relievers in the game have a BPV knocking on 100, so you got to get clear of 100 to uh, to be considered a high leverage reliever. Top flight starters like Spencer Strider and Kevin Gosman, I noticed have BPVs of 150 or higher, and then I noticed that the top rated BPVs for June were over 200. How is that even possible? I mean, the wonders of small sample sizes, right? Uh, the metric, you know, BPV works better as your you know denominator of innings gets larger, and yeah, you know, we can see. You know, any, anything can happen in a month, even from uh, you're feeling pretty good to you face a couple of lousy teams or what have you. Um, but, you know, uh, for the month of June, the aggregated BPVs were 99 in the AL and 87 in the NL. So it gives you a, you know, a, a healthy respect for just how good pitching is these days, right? Indeed, uh, Stephen Nickrand also offered a short paragraph on the dozen or so starting pitchers from his Excel table that he presented. In the American League, he pointed at Kyle Bradish of Baltimore. Yeah, he was really good in June with a 28% strikeout rate against only a 5% walk rate. So, you know, came out his BB of 22 points something. Uh, and he also combined that with a 48% ground ball rate, which of course limits the damage from fly balls, home runs, balls in the air. That nets out to a 153 BPV, uh, and you know, which is very well supportive of a 354 ERA and 104 WHIP that we saw for the month of June. So the uh, you know, and you dig even deeper into the numbers, uh, you can check his called and swing strike rate, his CSW metric. Thirty uh, percent on that metric is very good, and says that you know that twenty eight percent strikeout rate should stick up. Another American leaguer that Stephen flagged was right-hander James Caprellian of Oakland. Despite a seemingly mundane fifty-four BPV, what was Stephen seeing there? Yeah, another kind of a British, like a quietly decent month that you know flew a little bit under the radar there. And you got to pay attention to the sample sizes here. We're talking about just twenty-three innings for Caprellian, but you know, in those twenty-three innings, a three forty-seven ERA, a one twenty-four WHIP. Um, the skills underneath the underneath those were kind of mediocre, Stephen said. Um, but you know there are some nuggets in there: swing strike rate of eleven percent, a first pitch strike rate of seventy one percent, and the ball rate also of thirty four percent is pretty good. So you know some hints of a combination of a pounding the strike zone and b still getting swings and misses, which suggests that maybe things are a little bit better than the. Uh, you know, just 10% came on his BB rate that we saw for the month. So, you know, this was not a full-throated endorsement from Steven, but, um, you know, more of a, hey, there might be a, there might be some unrealized potential or, you know, something good happening here under the hood. Let's go over to the National League now. And among the hitters that got covered at Baseball HQ this week, a couple of Dodgers, Mookie Betts and Miguel Vargas. Vargas was pretty highly anticipated coming into this draft. And in fact, he was drafted pretty aggressively, a 13th round kind of level on the ADPs at the NFBC, but he really didn't deliver on the prospect pedigree. So far, a sub-Mendoza batting average, just seven home runs in 300 plate appearances, a couple of bags. 
Now the Dodgers have finally had enough. They've optioned Miguel Vargas to AAA. Mark Gannon covered the story for playing time today at Baseball HQ. So what happens in the Dodgers lineup now that Vargas isn't part of it? Yeah, he had really struggled for, you know, really right out of the gate. Uh, you know, he's been the primary second baseman, but uh, hitting under 200, you know, his plate, his plate patience was vaunted, you know, in spring training, he was taking walks left and right. His OBP is 305, which against a 195 batting average is pretty good. But when you start with a 195 batting average, you know, it's tough to get the OBP up into any kind of a decent range. Um, And, you know, more recently, he'd been in a five for 63 slump over the last month. So clearly the Dodgers decided that with Chris Taylor coming back off the IL after the break, that it was time to do something different with Vargas and try to let him work it out down in AAA. He's only 23 was the number three prospect on our organizational report this spring carrying an 8C prospect grade. So we think he'll be back probably at some point this season, but uh, we're cutting his playing time, you know, almost to the nub by now. We achieved 70% off the playing time. So we'll uh, wait and see how quickly he can get his swing straightened out in the minors. As for what the Dodgers are going to do, I mentioned Taylor, but they've got a lot of options. They've got Mookie Betts, who's been playing a lot of second base too. Yanni Hernandez is kicking around to can you know, get some starts there as well. Probably Taylor and Hernandez more against lefties and Betts for the good side of the, of the platoon. Um, and when Betts comes to the infield, of course, there are ripples in the outfield. You know, the likes of James Altman, Jason Hayward, Jason uh, David Peralta, you know, a couple of lefty bats in that group, all of whom are, uh, you know, pro- likely to play when Betts goes to the infield. Do you happen to know how many games Betts has this year at the various positions? Well, of course, he qualifies in outfield, but what about those infield slots? Yeah, it's pretty wild. He's got 67 games in the outfield, but already 22 at second. So in your 20-game leagues, he's qualified for next season. And he's already got 16 games at shortstop, too. So, you know, really good chance that he's going to qualify next year to be uh, outfield second-base shortstop eligibility, which is pretty wild. How much would that kind of eligibility boost his value, which is already pretty high in next season's drafts, do you think? Yeah, Brand Chesser from our staff looked at this about a month ago, and he said, you know, pointing out that, you know, Betts was already a first-rounder this season and is delivering that first-round value. He's going to finish at $30, over $30 again, unless something really weird happens in the second half. Um, And, of course, his track record of, you know, producing those kind of returns is well-established at this point. So, you know, does that move him from the back half of the first round where he was this year to the front half? I think it probably does. Um, you know, he started out with his ADP this year was 11. Um, I think he's going to get, uh, you know, into the top eight this year. Of course, he's now 30 years old and coming off a couple of seasons where he missed around a month's worth of time on the IL, hip inflammation one year, he had a broken rib. Any concern in the regard to injuries? Yeah, I don't think we're worried that worried about chronic injuries here. Um, but you know, certainly there's some element of what we talked about with, uh, Luis Robert earlier where, you know, if Betts does get through this whole season healthy after not doing that in the last couple of years, there's going to be, uh, you know, a market perception that, uh, you know, those, the memory of those injuries will fade and people will start thinking of Betts as maybe a little bit more durable than he is. And now, as you say, as he crosses into age 30 and above, we do have to get a little bit more concerned about that, uh, about the durability factor. The Dodgers, of course, are a very smart organization and have a lot of money committed to Betts for a very long time. So you can certainly imagine they're going to do everything they need to do to uh, you know, make sure that they're getting return on their investment for much of the next decade.
In Playing Time Tomorrow coverage of the National League Central, our analyst Dan Marcus looked at some playing time battles shaping up down the stretch, and among them was the playing time distribution in Cincinnati, especially in the outfield. Dan focused on one surprisingly productive red to date, outfielder T.J. Friedel. Yeah, so much attention with the Reds goes to the infusion of the uh, the rookie talent there, but some of these, you know, still young but, you know, less heralded journeyman type guys Friedel, Jake Fraley, et cetera, have been a, you know, have been a big part of lengthening this lineup too. Uh, in Friedel's case, you know, two, 277 plate appearances. He's got six home runs, 66 RBIs, run score combined, 16 stolen base hits, and he's hitting 304. So, you know, that's a, that's five category productivity there. Um, in terms of streakiness, it's a little bit hot and cold up and down. Um, and, you know, Dan looked under, under the hood at the metrics and said that, you know, maybe in terms of looking at the second half, you uh, you got to be a little more concerned than the uh, the 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 warning signs sort of carry the day. Uh, you know, the back control is very good, uh, very 85th percentile whiff and chase rates. Doesn't strike out much. Uh, walk rate is above average too. So the batting average foundation is positive, but there's not a lot of there there for the after contact, the pop, um, his hard contact index is 70. That's a low number, 30% below league average. And we said earlier, he makes a lot of contact. So the contact number number is good, but the hard contact number is bad. Tells you that he really does not hit the ball hard. Right. Um, and that's also backed up by a, uh, you know, very low expected power index. Uh, max EV is not good. The uh, barrels are not particularly high. So, and then he hits the ball on the ground a lot too. So you wonder how he even got the six home runs, right? <laughs> you know, a couple of times he ran into one, and certainly Great American Great American Ballpark helps, I guess, is the uh, is the bottom line there. Yeah, Friedel's uh, barrel rate first percentile. Like everybody in the league is better than him at barrel rate, which is not promising for power production. That's for sure. There's also not a lot of wiggle room in. Friedel's case for playing time because you got Nick Senzel there, you got Spencer Steer who could get more outfield playing time, especially if they ever promote Christian Encarnacion Strand, who has a 10-12 OPS in AAA this year, and uh, mid-40s home run pace per 650 plate appearances for Encarnacion Strand, not counting the change to Major League Baseball from the minor league stats, but finally, let's look at some pitchers in the National League. Uh, starting in Miami, we have three Miami pitchers who featured across Baseball HQ this week. We talked earlier about uh, Steve Nickran's starting pitcher buyer's guide feature looking at June BPVs, and three Miami starting pitchers got special attention in the write-ups, uh, starting with left-hander Braxton Garrett. Yeah, he hung up a base performance value of 220 in uh, the month of June, which was second overall to Blake Snell. We know Blake Snell was lights out for the month. Garrett was right behind him. Uh, Steven got so excited he used the term elite uh, twice in three sentences when writing about Garrett because, you know, I guess the thesaurus wasn't handy. Um, the first time he used it was in terms of strike zone command, uh, you know, and that's uh, when he measured the 12.1 strikeouts per nine for Garrett against just one walk per nine. Which is uh, you know, you, if you convert that to percentages, that's a thirty-three percent K minus K minus BB, which is uh, you know, which is off the charts good. Um, he's getting plenty of whiffs to back up that strikeout rate, and not surprisingly, when he's only walking one guy per nine, he's also an elite strike thrower. Um, first pitch strike seventy-two percent of the time, only a thirty-three percent ball rate, and then 
take all of that together, he's striking people out in bunches. He's not walking anybody. He's also getting ground balls, which is great because, you know, the occasional walk gets erased by the double play there and it's limiting the, uh, you know, the extra base hits and the home runs and that sort of thing. So really keep rotting Braxton Garrett is kind of the bottom line here. You know, that first pitch strike metric, anytime you look into it, it's surprising how the elite pitchers get a very high number in that regard. And I was thinking about it the other day when I was watching a game before the break and one of my pitchers was pitching and he just couldn't get a first pitch strike over. And it's so frustrating to watch because you know he's putting himself behind the eight ball time and time again by starting a 1-0 and rather than a 1-1. And it makes such a huge difference in all aspects of starting pitching, especially pitch count, because now you got that one extra pitch every single batter that's contributing to the pitch count without contributing to get anybody out. And I think that's really important. Uh, back, Braxton Garrett is a really interesting pitcher. I have him on a couple of teams. Uh, Marlin number two on the sorted list in Steven's column was right-hander Yuri Perez, another really fine young pitcher. Yeah, boy. Um, did he have a month of June or what? Uh, 28 innings. Uh, his ERA was 0.32. That's 0.32 with a uh, 0.82 whip. So his ERA plus whip was barely over one. I'm not sure I've seen that uh, anytime before. Again, the miracles of small sample sizes, right? Um, but in this case, you know, in within the sample size, with all the caveats to come with it, you know, the skills were there too. Uh, his BPV was 167 with a uh, you know, strikeout rate of more than 10 per nine. Uh, like Garrett, he was walking 1.3 guys per nine, so just a little more than Garrett. Um, he doesn't carry the ground ball rate. He's got more of a fly ball tilt. His ground ball rate is only 30%. So um, the um, the bugaboo with Yuri Perez, if there, if you could say there's a bugaboo after a month with a 0.32 ERA, is that when they hit him, they tend to hit him in the air. Um, but you know that could be okay too, because if they don't go over the fence, they often turn into outs. Um, you know, overall the 33% strikeout rate in June against a 5% walk rate, 28% came on SBB, very good, um, and all of this earned him a demotion, right? <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Tell me about it. <laughs> but that's where we are in terms of, you know, pitcher workload and, you know, wh whispers about service time elements to all of this, but, you know, safe to say that Perez will be back in the Marlins rotation soon. You think soon rather than next year? Oh, I don't think it'll be next, next year. I think, I think I saw a plan that said they were hoping to get him a couple of short inning starts in the minors just to limit his workload. And I, you know, have him back around August 1st, I think. Good news for Yuri Perez owners, including me. The last Marlin on Steven's list is left-hander Jesus Luzardo. Yeah, boy, they're just print and pitching down there in Florida, in Miami. It's amazing. Uh, and he had a, relative to these other two, he had a bad June with a 328 ERA and a whip of 0 0.76. Bum. But the skills were, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Cut him. Um, but the skills were elite. A 187 BPV, you know, again, striking out 10 guys per nine with barely what, barely uh, a walk per nine. So, you know, this Marlins team, you know, among everything else they do so well, pounds the strike zone. Uh, Luzardo does have the good ground ball rate, like we talked about with Perez. No, Perez not having. He's more like Garrett in that sense. Um, and again, under the hood, everything's great. Uh, nearly 16% on the swing strike rate. Again, the first pitch strikes two-thirds of the time. That's exactly what you want to see. A 32% ball rate. You know, Luzardo's fantastic. 
And he featured in another HQ column, Brant Chester's Arsenal report, which looks at pitch mixes. What was Brant pointing out about uh, Lozardo in that regard? Yeah, he's you know made some subtle changes to its pitch mix this year. Uh, he's throwing more four-seam fastballs, has gotten away from sinking the ball, which is interesting because the ground ball rate is still there, right? You would think that the four-seamer will be leading the more balls in the air, and it's not. Uh, the changes, he's getting more swinging strikes from the four-seamer, so they're not hitting it at all, um, which, of course, is a good outcome. Um, so that's, that's helping boost the... Uh, strikeout minus walk percentage, um, and he still is using his changeup heavily about a little more than 20% of the time, and that is also a ground ball heavy pitch. So even though he's not throwing the sinking fastball, he's still getting the ground balls via the changeup. So overall, that does seem like a positive change to the arsenal and you know, positive news for the Marlins and that they have all three of these pitchers. So it's a, you know, an embarrassment of riches there. It is an embarrassment of riches, and what they don't really do that well is score runs. Do you see a trade possibly if Miami thinks they're in any kind of race as we go down the stretch here it seems like from that surplus of good pitching they might be able to acquire a decent hitter maybe from the Reds who have the exact opposite situation yeah that really does seem like a potentially decent match you have to think that Kim Inging is getting a uh, calls from a lot of people that uh here in mid-July because not just the Reds but uh there are a lot of teams that could use some some pitching and this is not just good pitching but it's good young cost controlled pitching which uh you know the Marlins should be able to get very nice return if they if they uh make some decisions about which ones they want to keep and which ones they want to move on from by the way we haven't even talked about the reigning Cy Young winner on this staff either right right <laughs> who's not having that ter- terrific of a year but yeah reigning Cy Young winner say no more uh, finally uh, like Atlanta needs to get any stronger uh, left-hander Max Freed threw 35 pitches over an inning and a third scoreless in a rehab start at AAA on Sunday and they say he's going to be back late this week or early next week. Uh, what did we hear about Freed's outing? Yeah, he's been out since, uh, I think it was mid or late April, uh, on the 60-day IL op, actually, with a uh, strained left forearm. Uh, this was a limited rehab outing. You know, I think he was on a 35-inning, excuse me, 35-pitch or two-inning limit. Uh, he So he only ended up getting four outs on 35 pitches. He gave up a hit in two walks, 18 strikes, 17 balls on his 35 pitches. They took him right out of the, uh, you, know, you, can, you know, this is the kind of stuff you do with uh, valuable assets on a rehab. You know, they he had a strict 35-pitch limit, so they, fa- in fact, came out and got him right after pitch 35, even though it was like the middle of it at bat, it was like two and one. And they're like, nope, you're done. That was 35. God forbid you throw the 36th pitch. The right? 36th pitch <laughs> is the killer. Yeah. So, uh, what do we know about how long it is before he gets up? Yeah. I, I have not seen scheduled when he's going to pitch again. Uh, you can sort of extrapolate how many rehab starts he'll need based on that one, uh, before it gets back to Atlanta. They usually don't like to go up more than 15 or 20 pitches per outing. So if you're starting at 35, you're probably, you know, I would think at least three more rehab starts before he's up in, you know, the eighties or knocking on 90 and can come to Atlanta with at least a chance to, you know, get through five innings. So later this week, early next doesn't seem reasonable. Seems a little optimistic. Yeah. I would think more like end of the month, right? In our playing time tomorrow coverage of the National League East, analyst Sarah Sanchez looked at the eventual shape of the Atlanta rotation. What did Sarah report? Yeah, so when Freed comes back, and Kyle Wright is also uh, due back sometime later this summer as well. So, you know, there's going to be some squeeze out of the rotation to make 
to, to make room for those guys who are, of course, established. So right now, um, it's probably Mike Soroka or Colby Allard who seem like they would have to give up a spot for Freed. Um, Soroka maybe first based on performance. Uh, you know, he's only thrown twenty innings in the majors uh, across four starts in a this year with an ERA of five thirty one, uh, and you know, underlying metrics that suggest it could be even worse. Um, Allard, you know, has pitched less in the majors. He's only got nine and two thirds innings across two starts, but he's looked better. He's got a 29% strikeout rate to Soroka's 17%. Um, and Allard also walking less, um, about half the guys that Soroka does. So it seems like if we're playing, uh, who's been better in small samples in Atlanta game, it's actually Allard. Um, so to be TBD. And of course, like I said, you know, we're talking about who comes back when Freed is healthy, but Kyle Wright isn't that far behind. So both of these guys could end up being uh, squeezed out by the time the calendar turns to August or so. Don't go out and break the bank of fabbing Allard this week. I know great run support, fantastic bullpen, a great team just in general. But like you said, it's going to be a fairly short run for either of these guys. I think, uh, Baseball HQ's injury analysts put Wright's likely return in the middle of August, so we have that to look forward to as well. Ray, thanks a million for helping us out. Talk to you again in a week. Excellent. Thanks as always, Petey. Ray Murphy is co-general manager, projections expert, writer, and analyst at BaseballHQ.com. Coming up, we have part two of our feature expert interview with Greg Jewett. But first, let me highlight some more great resources at the BaseballHQ.com right now. In this week's Facts and Fluke Spotlight, analyst Stephen Nickrand looks at Mets left-handed starter David Peterson. And in this week's Playing Time Tomorrow roster forecasting, analyst Brian Rudd looks at pivotal hitters and pitchers in the second half in the American League Central, including Bo Naylor of Cleveland, Oscar Colas of the White Sox, and Kenta Maeda of Minnesota. The Facts and Fluke Spotlight and Playing Time Tomorrow roster forecasting, two more great resources online every week at BaseballHQ.com. Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for part two of our feature expert interview with Greg Jewett from the Reliever Recon website, Baseball HQ and The Athletic. Greg, welcome back to part two. Thank you, Patrick. Always great to be on with you. I appreciate it. We talked earlier about the high-level view of closers and relievers in fantasy baseball, but let's move to some particular comments you've made about those pitchers. And to start at Reliever Recon, you have a segment called Closer Charts. How do your readers use those items? When you become a subscriber of Reliever Recon, you get access to my Google charts, which update daily, I mean, uh, in during games. Uh, as games are happening, I'm putting the recaps below uh, in capsules with the things we talked about earlier. Um, I have, I have a, a chart that shows, like, you know, who's the closer slash most likely save option, the backup guy, the person you kind of want to keep an eye on. I call it stealth. I, I put a name of a minor league reliever that's somebody that they should track, like, you know, Milwaukee, we're keeping tabs on Abner Uribe, uh, Philadelphia, Ryan Kirkring, things of that nature. Uh, and then on the bottom of it, there are tabs where I keep SGP, which is basically daily rankings. So I update those uh, every morning with the days before action. So it shows you uh, relievers. It ranks the relievers based on their results in SGPs, which is standing gains point. Um, in, in standard leagues, I do points leagues for those at CBS that play head to head. And I also do that, uh, for those that play solds. So 
There's three different things you can click. And I also show the last two weeks in case there's trends coming or somebody that's uh, coming out of nowhere to do it. Uh, and then what you had access to were the long form versions where I can take what I supply on the charts and actually add the StatCast data and other observations, whether it's what happened in the game or um, putting in my little uh, points of view or, or things to watch for. In an item about the Yankees blowing a lead against the Cubs in Yankee Stadium, you said closer Clay Holmes is, and I quote, a terrific reliever, but doesn't possess the swing and miss stuff necessary for this type of situation. What was the situation you were referring to, and how is Clay Holmes's stuff insufficient to meet it? It's not necessarily insufficient. However, um, in the top of the eighth inning with the top of the lineup coming, um, Aaron Boone decided to use uh, a different reliever, and he ended up loading the bases. So Holmes was forced into the game with a bases loaded situation and no outs. So if you were willing to use Clay Holmes in the eighth inning in that moment, to me, I would have rather have had him open the inning um, and go through the top of the lineup and hopefully get you through it unscathed. And he could have faced, say, a Suzuki uh, in the ninth. And then if you wanted to bring in uh, Wandy Peralta to face Cody Bellinger as a left-on-left -left matchup, you had that available to you. But instead, um, you know, here's the thing. Clay Holmes is very good, but he's a sinker ball pitcher, which means he's more prone to contact. He has a 72% contact rate this year with only 11.1 .1 swinging strike rates, which means, you know, only – he only gets a whiff every 11.1% of his pitches. Um, so, I mean, if Holmes gets a strikeout and induces a double play, then he makes a liar out of me. However, uh, the sacrifice fly happened and he let another run score uh, on, a, on a wild pitch. So, I mean, I, I just think he set Holmes up to fail in that situation. Uh, that just doesn't play to his strength. He's Holmes is very good starting with clean innings, but he's not as good when he comes into messy situations, if that makes sense. Oh, it does make sense. I know that that's one of those narrative kind of things that we hear about when it's coming to relievers, but it makes sense that you'd want to come in clean and not have to worry about a guy on third. If you start every inning with a guy on third, it's going to be a, a much tougher row to hoe. You also said that if things don't improve in the second half, roster changes will ensue in New York. Uh, what changes do you see coming in the Bronx? First and foremost, they need Aaron Judge back, but um, you know, it's I, I can't remember when the Yankees were perceived. There was a year they kind of retooled on the fly when they traded Chapman to the Cubs and they, they got Glaber Torres and they kind of, you know, redid things. But I think the second half collapse last year kind of resonates with people. They, they, they limped into the playoffs and then made an early exit. Um, I just, I think there's a lot of pressure on this team, not only with how it's presently constructed without judge, it really, shows how weak this lineup is, especially with Rizzo's uh, recent collapse in cratering and production. Um, so I don't know. I mean, uh, Severino's a free agent at the end of the season. I doubt he wants to stay with the Yankees. If they decide they're going to do stuff, they might start putting some of these people uh, on the trade market. I, I don't know that'll happen. I, I doubt the Yankees will really entertain it, but you know, something, something's got to change. And I think it would be a mistake if they became big, unless they have a really good, if they come out of the second half on fire, then you can justify adding to the lineup and getting judge back and making a run. Uh, but you know, there's, there's a lot more ifs than, than, than things I can really plan on with that team moving forward. Any particular changes in the bullpen? I don't think so. Uh, it would depend on who they get back if they move somebody. I, I, I just don't think they're at their bullpen's really not a position of strength to do a lot of trading. Um, again, 
if, if they decide they're going to go for it now, if Hader ends up on the market, could I see the Yankees doing what it takes to get Hader for a, a rental to get through the, the playoff run? Absolutely. That's, I think their first 10 games out of the break are going to be pivotal towards um, steering what happens to them at the trade deadline. In an otherwise insignificant Oakland game, you noted that Shintaro Fujinami had a good outing and might quietly be riding a ship that went on the rocks in week one, as I know I had him on three teams, and it seemed to stay on the rocks pretty much ever since. But you also said in another article uh, that had uh, touched on Fujinami that you actually prefer his arsenal to Oakland closer Trevor May's arsenal. So what's the latest thinking on Shintaro Fujinami, maybe as a potential saves guy? There's a couple of things here. A, Trevor May, and, and again, uh, first and foremost, Trevor May has been through some personal issues this year, and he's been like open about it on Twitter. And you know, kudos to that. I, he's a great guy. I, I I love. I really like Trevor May as a person. Uh, however, from a fantasy standpoint, you know, he's been better lately, but he still has more walks than strikeouts this year, which is less than ideal from somebody in the ninth inning. And he's on a one-year contract, which means he could be, if he keeps pitching well, which he has the last couple of weeks, um, it's foolish for Oakland to keep him for the full season, um, even though he went back to the West Coast to be near his family, but they can move him to another team out that way uh, and give him a chance at the playoffs. Uh, so Fujinami, he's hitting, uh, he was hitting 102 miles per hour in his last outing. He's, his fastball's coming around. I think he's becoming acclimated. And don't forget too long ago, um, Kevin Gossman was a struggling pitcher. They put him in relief in Cincinnati, and then he kind of refound his arsenal and his splitter, and then he went back to starting the year after. I'm not saying Fujinami can go through the same sort of a thing, but at the same token, a lot of times when guys just break it down to an inning and focus on that lineup pocket, it, it, it lets their arsenal pop a little bit more. So um, I'm keeping a track of now his last 6.2 innings. He's got eight strikeouts and zero walks. And a 0 0.4, oops, excuse me, 0 0.59 whip. So to me, that's pretty good stuff. So, I mean, Oakland's not very good, but if you can get a guy that's helping your ratios with a little bit of strikeout upside and get you an occasional save as a third reliever in your lineup, that's not too bad. Uh, but again, he needs a trade of May for that to happen. David Bednar took a loss against Arizona, but reading between the lines in your coverage, it seemed you were not really holding that loss against him. Where is David Bednar as a closer in your estimation? David Bednar is very good. He's another uh, underrated asset. And, and you're going to start seeing everybody saying, oh, we need to trade for Bednar. I, I don't know that Pittsburgh will trade him uh, just because he has two more years of team control. Uh, so, but at the same token, the, the bridge to get to him is very unstable. That's not a very good um, relief core to get to the ninth inning, which has necessitated him working more multiple inning outings. So, you know, that just takes a toll on anybody. And he said he's in better shape this year. But we, we can't forget last year, uh, Bednar was off to a great start in the first half. And then he got used in um, two different multiple inning games against the Dodgers. And then after that's when he succumbed to the back injury and then he was never quite the same in the second half last year. So I just don't want the Pittsburgh to be, to feel like they have to use them for four or, you know, four five, even six outs at times to win a game because that takes him out of play for the next two contests. You said Alex Lang of Detroit is a different pitcher when he attacks hitters and gets ahead early in counts. Uh, that's generally true of all pitchers, I think. But what prompted the comment with regard to Alex Lang? 
earlier in the season after uh, after his first 26 appearances, I kind of did a breakdown for our subscribers. So um, I didn't have time to go through all of it and update it now. But um, all right. So in his first 26 outings, um, this oh, excuse me. Yeah. Uh, in, in his 21 scoreless appearances, he threw strikes. Let me check my notes here. He threw strikes 60% of the time with an 18.7 swinging strike rate and a 0.75 whip. Now, of course, you know, it's easy because I'm handpicking his things, but when he struggles, he he's only in his five appearances at that point where he had given up at least a run, he was only throwing strikes 52% of the time. So that's a, a, a bit of a drop. His swinging strike rate then got cut in half to 9.3% and his whip was 3.50. Uh, the issue is, is when he gets behind and counts, he has to throw a sinker. Now, his sinker has an expected batting average of 290 and an expected slugging north of 450. So when he has to, say, throw a strike, he's, you know, 3031. If he throws a sinker instead of his curve, uh, it usually gets tattooed a little bit. So um, if, if he's not ahead and counts early and his stuff is not sharp, that's usually when the meltdowns uh, accrue for him. You advised your readers to keep tabs on Gavin Hollowell, a Colorado reliever. Why the interest in a rookie with a 5 ERA and a 150 whip pitching in Coors Field? Because they should trade Daniel Bard and they keep using Justin Lawrence as an HLR, which means if they do trade Bard and they're probably going to trade Pierce Johnson because he's on a one-year deal. Um, again, they might stay with Bard and I could be made a liar, but then Hollowell, he's, you know, I, there's a little bit of swing and miss stuff there and he's got better velocity so it's just someone to track now after after i wrote that i did read that um tyler kinley is nearing a rehab outing in the minors now if kinley can come back too then you know again you know colorado stinks but bar did have 30 saves last year it's just one of those things it, this is more from a 15 team point of view I, I wouldn't use any of these relievers in a 12 team league or or shallower you share another series of articles called Fantasy Fab Five, you and some other writers. And in Saturday's edition, you highlighted White Sox reliever Gregory Santos. Why the interest in Gregory Santos? Because the White Sox fire sale is probably going to be opening sooner rather than later. Um, so let's see. Renelto Lopez, uh, Keenan Middleton are both on one year. They're on expiring contracts. So obviously they're going to get traded to a contender. Um, you know, we don't know, there's no timeline on Liam Hendricks coming back and Kendall Graven's been struggling as of late. You know, um, I, it was from the same time frame as Santos going back from a, a time point in June. And in that same time, Santos does have a save, although it was a rocky one against Oakland. Uh, but he does have a nine to two K to BB over his last, uh, over his last nine appearances, eight of which have been scoreless. So it's just one of those things where if you're in a deep league, and you want to put a guy away for a dollar now, and then if he does get some saves uh, as the deadline approaches and Hendricks doesn't come back, uh, that's just somebody that I think is advantageous. You, you want to get that guy for a dollar rather than he gets two saves in a week and then you're bidding 50. In coverage of some fab activity at the NFBC, you drew attention to Philadelphia reliever Matt Strom. And I have to say, he He's always on top of the value projections when I run the free agents in my NFPC leagues, but he never gets fabbed, including by me. What is almost everybody missing about Matt Strom? We talked about it's hard to stream starters. It's a little easier to stream relievers, I think. You know, again, there's always there's inherent risk with anybody when you're streaming them. Uh, but here's the thing: coming off of the break, and, and the reason we highlight them is is Philadelphia is going to play four games against San Diego. They have a doubleheader on Saturday. 
Um, anytime you've got double headers, you're going to need relievers mopping up innings. And Strom is capable of handling multiple inning outings, which could put him in if a, if a starter leaves before the, the fifth or the sixth or the game's decided. Strom could pick up a vulture win, especially if he gets like a 1.2 inning outing or retires five guys. Or he's been, you know, just quietly putting up strikeouts. He's got 12 strikeouts against one walk over his last 7.2 innings. You know, again, you're just looking for, we're looking for deep leagues. We're saying, hey, Strom could get you a cheap save or a cheap win this weekend. And in a, in a very short scoring period, like this little three, three, three day run that's coming after the all-star break, you know, if a couple of your starters aren't pitching, having him in your lineup, not only can give you a couple of extra strikeouts, but it could get you a cheap win or save, which is, which is huge in these overall contests. At your bullpen report in the athletic, in the column before the break, you looked at some relievers who could go uphill and downhill after the break. One of the best reliever stories of 2023 has been the unheralded Carlos Estevez in Los Angeles. Why are you concerned about a guy who has a 180 ERA, a 129 whip, and 21 saves and 21 tries? Um, because below that nice 1.80 ERA, uh, I referenced earlier that I, I like seeing Sierra as an in-season predictor. Uh, his Sierra is 3.79, so that's almost two runs above his current ERA. 12.2 um, walk rate this season. You know, again, he started out well. His first 24 games, 32 to 10 K to BB, which translates into a 22.2 K minus BB percentage. Since the start of June, after that heavy workload, um, he has not had the same results. His last 11 innings, he's got 11 strikeouts against eight walks. That's a paltry 6.3 K minus BB rate with a 1.64 whip. So, I mean, when you look at the overall picture, it, it says Estevez is pretty good. And, and, and again, he started the year great and he was somebody that recon um, advised people getting in draft season at his price point. However, I'm just nervous that the second half might bore if all of those underlying, if his real numbers start moving towards all those underlying ones and that whip doesn't improve, uh, I'm just worried about him struggling in high leverage moments, not to, not to mention that if the Angels are going to be sellers again, uh, wins might be tough to come by, which again will cap his save total. So there's, there's a lot of things working against him. It just makes me cautious about him moving forward. You also mentioned as a guy who could improve and get better outcomes in the second half, uh, Kansas City closer Scott Barlow, chiefly on the possibility that he might end up leaving Kansas City by trade. But if he does, isn't it more likely that he ends up on a better team and may get holds rather than saves? It's quite possible. Um, that that piece was more centered on the ERA minus Sierra and guys that have been going with bad luck. Um, not necessarily are they going to come in and become a, a save option. Uh, you know, I, I just wanted to point out that he's had some bad luck and he, you know, he did, he did pitch very well against Los Angeles, which is kind of funny because that could be one of the teams I could see him ending up for, especially because if he goes to LA, he could be uh, a, a setup guy and, and let, you know, Evan Phillips really run with the primary save share now that Daniel Hudson has been taken out of the equation with another knee injury. And of course, if you're a late inning reliever on a team that can score runs like the Dodgers, maybe some vulture wins in there as well. Uh, of course, Aroldis Chapman's out of the picture in Kansas City. So should the Royals trade Barlow, who's likely next in line? It's one of two names for me. Um, you know, like most in the fantasy community, I was initially drawn to Carlos Hernandez. Um, 
you know, transition from a starter into a reliever, which obviously made his velocity spike this year. Um, and he's been pitching well. I mean, he's on a eight-game scoreless streak. But um, the only thing that makes me nervous about Carlos Hernandez is not his performance. It's the fact that two of his last three outings, he's worked two innings. I just don't know if Kansas City needs or values him more as somebody that can get multiple inning outings and, and save people in their bullpen. Um, there's two names that could, that could surface. I mean, we've always been, you know, and Doug and I have talked about Dylan Coleman in the past, you know, big, big velocity, just no idea with the command where the ball's going. Um, the other intriguing name to me is one that no one's really talking about. That's Jonathan Heasley, another former starter. Again, it's a very limited sample. He's only made two relief outings, but they've both been very good. And he's, he's flashed a swinging strike rate north of 20%. Now, again, I don't know if he can do this over an extended extended exposure or time in relief, um, but those are guys that I would be tracking. Again, common sense says Hernandez. Again, I just worry about how they how they use them. So that'll make me really monitor Coleman and Heasley very closely in the next couple of weeks. Uh, again, Kansas City's another team that should be selling whatever they can. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt, wrapping up with Greg Jewett from the Reliever Recon, the Athletic and Baseball HQ. And Greg, uh, I always like to end these discussions by looking at some boons and banes. And since we've been talking relief pitching, let's look at relief pitchers for the rest of this season. And we'll start with your boons. These are players who look like good value for the balance of the year. Who's a setup man who could be a boon? Um, Tanner Scott. Um, you know, it's funny because last year he burned so many people when he was the closer. He did get 20 saves, but his his whip as the year progressed went way where we don't want it, and it made him a, a ratio risk. Uh, he's one of eight relievers in the first half to record a K-minus BB percentage better than 23, a swinging strike rate better than 16, and give up contact percentage 65% or less. Again, one of eight. So, you know, he's, he's posted a 27.2 K-minus BB percentage. Miami's played 27 one-run games already this year with 21 wins in them, so you know they're playing tight contests. And if they're really going to make a push for the playoffs, you know, if A.J. Puck um, succumbs to injury or wears down a little bit, I mean, we've never he's he's getting towards uh, a max inning area for his career. Um, if he needs another break or whatever, you could see Tanner Scott not only be a good setup reliever. Uh, in your souls formats, but but sneak in and grab some saves in a, in a two week period, or, or you know potentially more, depending on if anything does happen. I don't want to wish bad luck on anybody because I have a puck on a couple of rosters, but I think Scott's a name to add, uh, in, in here that made a lot of sense. And how about a closer who could be a boon? Um, I'm going back to the wall with Evan Phillips just because I think the Dodgers are going to be better in the second half than people anticipate. Um, that, you know, that they want to win the West, even if in, in a mini rebuild and, you know, here's what's happening. So over his, he's been scoreless in 11 of his last 12 appearances with a 15 to three K to BB. Um, he's got five saves and six opportunities in those outings. And he's, he's finished the game eight times out of 12. So, you know, games finish is kind of a, it can be a little bit of a silly stat, but it does tell you who's pitching last for the team in those games. Um, if he gets his game finish percentage up to 70% or he just keeps running with those save chances, I, I, I think I think Los Angeles would be more prone to add a setup reliever rather than go out and get a closer in the trade market, which would give Phillips a chance to have a really good second half if he gets if he gets a, a pretty good run as that primary save share. 
And let's go to your Baines. These are players you think will be overrated for the rest of the season. Again, how about a setup pitcher likely to be a Bane? Um, I, I'm going to say Bruce Dar Gratterall stay with the Dodger theme. You know, it's it's like we in the preseason we got caught up in the hype and thought he might get save chances. Um, he just he, he even though know, he throws almost 100 and it looks effortless, he just doesn't generate strikeouts. And again, I think the Dodgers are going to add people to kind of push him out of a, a primary setup role. They're okay with Ferguson, even though Alex Vesia has been coming on. It wouldn't surprise me if Alex Vesia and uh, a player that they trade for are the main setup guys with Phillips closing down the stretch. And finally, how about a closer who could work out to be a Bane? Um, I already, I already threw enough cold water on Carlos Estevez. I won't do it again, but um, this weekend, Daniel Barr was the most added reliever uh, in online championships and main events in the NFBC leagues. And I, you know, again, a, another guy gone through personal struggles uh, last year, recon, he was one of our hits. We, we told people to get him early in draft season last year and he got the 30 saves and it was great. And it was awesome. Um, this year he's had the command issues. His velocity is still sitting at 95 miles per hour. And I know he got the last save for the Rockies, but um, I don't know if they're doing this as a as a way to justify the contract or if they're trying to build his trade value. I just I just fear now. I talked about Estevez having a bad Sierra. So Daniel Bard entering the second half has a 1.76 ERA. His Sierra is 5.79. I mean that to me that just screams regression coming around the bend. And I just don't want to be a part of um, a couple of implosions if they happen when he, when he's closing games again. All my best to him on the personal level. I just, from a fantasy standpoint, I, I would fear having him on my roster right now. Greg Jewett's Boons, Tanner Scott of Miami, Evan Phillips of the Dodgers, his Baines, Bruzdar, Greatorall of the Dodgers, and Daniel Bard of Colorado. Been great, Greg. Lots of fun listening to you and uh, great knowledge. Uh, remind our listeners where they can keep up with your work. Uh, on the Twitter machine, at G-J-E-W-E-T-T-9, uh, Reliever Recon. If you just search it, it's right on Patreon. Uh, it's only $5. It's $5 when you first sign up and then monthly from there on after, but that gives you access to more, more content than most people probably want. But uh, we keep things popping. We also cover points and souls leagues, not just saves. And all of the, the lineup outlooks usually post Fridays on Baseball HQ. I'll have a column with an outlook for, uh, you know, what's happening as we enter the second half with some stream options for the scoring period starting next week. And uh, thanks for all that you do, Patrick, in the community. I've met you in person. You're a great guy and uh, keep up all the great work here at HQ. Well, Greg, thanks a million for joining us. It was a lot of fun and I hope we get to talk to you again, uh, not only in Arizona, but here on the show. Look forward to it. Thank you. Greg Jewett writes about relievers at the Reliever Recon website covers closers for The Athletic, and writes the lineup's outlook column at Baseball HQ. Coming up, we have our Baseball HQ commentaries. The Frequent Flyer and My Extra Innings are on the way. But first, one last reminder about the resources available to you when you subscribe to BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. The Baseball HQ scouting team has comprehensive coverage of prospects who can make or break a fantasy season. This week, our daily call-ups report looks at all the latest prospect call-ups starting the second half with catcher Tyler Soderstrom and infielder Zach Geloff in Oakland. And the Eyes Have It podcast covers the recent Futures game and batting practice at All-Star Weekend in Seattle, as well as the recent entry draft. 
Comprehensive prospect coverage is another great resource at BaseballHQ.com. I've mentioned a few of the resources on the site now at BaseballHQ.com, and really they're just the tip of the iceberg of all the great content and tools you'll find at BaseballHQ.com all the time. There's player performance validation in facts and flukes, news updates in playing time today and roster forecasting in playing time tomorrow. We have buyer's guides for hitters, starters, and relievers, fantasy market analysis in the market pulse, long shot suggestions in the speculator column, team injury reports and player injury analysis in the big hurt column, gaming strategy analysis for rotisserie, points leagues, NFBC, and alternative formats, and groundbreaking fantasy baseball research. As well, there are tools like the player projections updated every day, updated depth charts, daily dashboards, pitcher matchups planners, bullpen indicators, batter consistency reports, complete pitcher PQS logs, potential surgers and faders, and other leading indicators for hitters and pitchers. Add it all up, you get expert content plus tools you can use to improve your teams and win your leagues. And they're why we call our site the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. PD here. Time now for our Baseball HQ commentaries. Coming up, we have my extra innings comment. And leading off, it's the Frequent Flyer, where we look at a player who might be available on your league's free agent list and who has the skills to contribute to the success of your teams. Here with a look at Arizona right-handed reliever Justin Martinez is Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky. He's got impact closer potential with plus potential neutralizers for both left-handed batters, a changeup, and right-handed batters, a slider, and a demon of a four-seam fastball that gets both whiffs and ground balls, according to the June 28th edition of call-ups on BaseballHQ.com. A demon of a fastball? How do you possibly explain that? It's power stuff, Diamondbacks manager Tori Lovello said of 21-year-old Arizona Diamondbacks flamethrowing reliever Justin Martinez, as quoted by MLB.com Steve Gilbert on June 28th. It's 100 miles per hour, 101, 102, and I love that power, but it's about throwing it where he wants to, and what are you going to throw off of that, Lovello continued? Indeed. Recapping Martinez's historic debut on July 7th, just before the All-Star break, and the Arizona Republic's Theo Mackey detailed the fans' reactions at Chase Field to the mind-blowing pitch velocity numbers appearing on the scoreboard. Five times, according to Mackey, that number read 102 miles per hour. To be more precise, Martinez threw five four-seam fastballs at 101.9, 101.8, 101.8 again, 101.6, and 101.5 miles per hour in one inning. According to Mackey, those pitches may have been the five fastest pitches in Diamondbacks history, depending on how Randy Johnson's pre-stack cast pitch velocity data is interpreted. Wow! Even so, again referencing Matthew St. Germain's June 28th call-ups article on BaseballHQ.com, it's hard to recommend a guy grinding out a 171 whip and a corresponding 21% walk rate in the minors in 2023. That's why 21-year-old Arizona Diamondbacks fireman Justin Martinez, like all of our frequent flyers, should be considered to be a long shot, who may be worth a flyer if he is still available in your league. Hint... Nevertheless, Matthew St. Germain's call-ups article also pinpointed Martinez's high spin rate, 2,500 RPM on his four-seamer, as a positive dynamic, reducing heavy ground ball tilt almost 70% of the time. 
Additionally, according to StatCast, Martinez's four-seamer on average moves approximately 13 inches towards a right-handed batter and drops approximately 16 inches on average. For comparison, MLB.com's Baseball Savant states that the league average for horizontal movement is 7 inches versus Martinez's 13 inches, already almost twice the league average. Vertically, Martinez's 16 inches of drop also surpasses a league average of 15 inches of drop, again according to Baseball Savant. See, he's already exceeding expectations despite the extremely small one-major league inning sample size right before the All-Star break. Hint. On that basis, maybe 21-year-old Arizona Diamondbacks flamethrower Justin Martinez will exceed your expectations as possibly an impact closer. Hint. And as our frequent flyer for this week. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Alex Becky of BaseballHQ.com. Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky has his frequent flyer comment here on Baseball HQ Radio every week. Now it's time for Extra Innings, my weekly comment on baseball and fantasy baseball, and this week I want to talk about how Rob Manfred is right. I don't know if you've been following this story, but Major League Baseball and the Players Association are having a genteel and low-key but heated discussion about the pitch clock. Now, I know what you're thinking. If anything around here needs a clock, it's this segment of the podcast. But seriously, the baseball media are reporting pretty widely that owners gopher Rob Manfred is talking with the players' union about some concerns they have using the pitch clock in the playoffs. The players are arguing that because the playoffs are played at a higher level of intensity, they need extra time to compose themselves. Super agent Scott Boris was quoted in the media as saying there clearly should be no pitch clock in the playoffs. No pitch clock. Not they should have more time, or we should have more timeouts, or even there should be more time in higher leverage situations. Nope. No pitch clock. Why? Because, according to Boris, the entire playoffs are a high leverage situation. And again, I quote, It's the moment. The big moment. They need to reflect. They need more time. It's a different scenario than the regular season, and we don't want their performances rushed. Now, at this point, I was starting to wonder if Boris might have thought the players were going on stage at the Metropolitan Opera to sing the Hygia Vinta la Causa aria from The Wedding of Figaro. But no, it turns out they're still just playing baseball. But in the playoffs, Boris insists, and again I quote, We don't want these men in a completely different emotional environment. At this level, we want them to have the appropriate time, both pitchers and position players, to evaluate and move forward in the most prepared and directed way. So, apparently during the regular season, the players are just ignoring situations and kind of haphazardly moving forward without evaluating things in unprepared and random ways? Come on. Ordinarily, whenever the players and owners are on opposite sides of an issue, I side with the players, for the basic reason that the players are the game. If we don't have players, we don't have any major league games. We don't have owners, we still have major league games, and we still have major league games in Oakland. But on this issue, I'm afraid the players are wrong, and Rob Manfred, like the proverbial blind squirrel, is (coughs) right. Manfred told the media, you ought to play the postseason the way you play the regular season, and that's pretty hard to argue against. You look at all the other major sports, the rules aren't changed for the playoffs. 
Yeah, the refereeing is sometimes a little more laissez-faire in the NHL and NBA playoffs in particular, which often look like rugby games, especially later in the games, but the NBA doesn't give the offensive team 14 seconds instead of 8 to get over the timeline, nor does the offense get 36 seconds instead of 24 on the shot clock. NHL penalties are still two minutes, though in Boras's words, it's a different scenario than the regular season. We don't want their performances rushed. NFL teams don't get five downs in the playoffs. They don't get 18-minute quarters. They don't get extra timeouts, other than for more commercials. Although in the Super Bowl, they do get that four-hour halftime break to allow some musical act to be wheeled out and lip-sync a few songs from when we were all in high school and haven't thought about since. Besides, Major League players had their chance to object to the pitch clock when they negotiated it before the season started, and they voted against it. But in the CBA that they also agreed to, they had already surrendered the right to block rules changes so their objection could be, and was, overruled by Rob Manfred. Listen, the playoffs are not a different season. They're an extension of the regular season, except the players aren't paid, which is why the owners keep adding to the playoffs. That's an issue the players' union should be focusing on. But otherwise, as I said earlier, on this issue, Rob Manfred is right. The playoffs aren't a different season. They should be played under the same rules. So I guess Rob Manfred can play the role of Count Almaviva in The Marriage of Figaro. That Mozart aria, Hygia Vinta la Causa, in English means, you've already won the case. For BaseballHQ.com, I'm Patrick Davitt. I have my extra innings commentary here on Baseball HQ Radio pretty much every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, July the 14th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 26 of the 2023 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our guest expert for this Friday full edition, Greg Jewett, from the Reliever Recon website, Baseball HQ and The Athletic. Greg is a great guy personally and an excellent fantasy baseball analyst. If you're coming out to First Pitch Arizona, make sure to put some time aside for the presentation by Greg and Doug Dennis about relief pitching. I also want to thank our regular commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our Market Watch news analyst was Ray Murphy, and our frequent flyer commentator was Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky. I'm Patrick Abbott, your extra innings commentator and the host of Baseball HQ Radio. I sure hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Also, remember you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook and on our Twitter feed at BaseballHQ. You can also follow my personal Twitter feed, at Patrick Davitt, where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. Please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio, and take a second to go to Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Pocket Cast, Spotify, wherever you catch your pods, and leave Baseball HQ Radio a good review and a rating. And by the way, if you're using Stitcher to find Baseball HQ Radio, they're going out of business at the end of August, so you might want to pick up one of the other pod getters and track down Baseball HQ Radio there. If your pod getter of choice doesn't find Baseball HQ Radio, let us know about that or anything else on your mind by emailing bhqradio at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again next Friday with another Friday Full Edition featuring Rob McCabe, a fantasy baseball researcher specializing in fab analysis. And in the weeks ahead, we'll have more top-notch guest experts, including Jason Collette from Rotowire and the Sleeper and the Bus podcast, plus all the usual great stuff. 
our news analysis, our Baseball HQ commentaries, and Rob McCabe on next Friday's full edition of the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. Talk with you again next Friday. And for now, so long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com, where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt. Just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts.